Every year in the UK, 155,000 people go missing. In Australia, 51,000 people go missing. But what does it mean to go missing? And why aren't more people aware we have a problem of pandemic proportions? I'm Karen Shalev-Green. And I'm Caroline Humer. This is Missing Persons Uncovered. In this first episode, we're going to help you get your head around this issue. The reality is that people go missing for all sorts of reasons, and the way missing is defined is crucial in getting help. But across the series, we'll be meeting leading academics and practitioners working in this field, as well as hearing from people who've had first-hand experience of what it is to go missing and be missing. We won't be revealing identities and personal details of missing or vulnerable people. But the conversation you'll hear are designed to be a resource and an eye-opener to all on this international issue. We hope that the knowledge shared in this podcast series will create conversation and raise awareness of how we can all support and protect society's most vulnerable people. You can find out more on our website, missingpersonsuncovered.com. First up, you probably want to know who we are and why we're raising awareness about missing persons and why it's so important to us. Caroline and I talked about our work and different motivations. I'm Caroline Hewer. I am a child protection expert with 20 years of experience in the field, in the nonprofit sector, working with various stakeholders of government and policymakers. I have set up various, uh, helping various countries and setting up missing children's response, as well as doing training around the world on how to investigate missing children cases. I'm Karen Shalev-Green. I'm an academic, a research, and I work at the University of Portsmouth. My area of research is about missing persons. So we research anything and everything to do with people going missing which can vary from anything to do with child abduction to people with dementia, people with mental health, working with organizations, working with nonprofit organizations, working with law enforcement agencies in the UK and internationally. And I've been submerged in the world of missing persons for the past 12 years. Karen, I think we all want to sort of understand there's most of us have reasons why we get into this. So what made you start studying and research into missing persons? So I, I, my answer is actually it's fate. And I think of it as something quite spiritual that's beyond me. So I did my PhD on offender profiling slash geographical side of things as to why offenders choose where to offend. And it didn't feel at home. That's the best explanation I have for it just didn't feel right. And I didn't really know what to do. So I did a few projects, but I was I, I was in no man's land. And then Charlie Hedges, who you'll talk to in a few weeks, he worked with the national charity Missing People. He came to the university and said through just through links that he had, and he said, look, we've got this database at the charity. Is anybody interested in having a play with it? And I thought, well, maybe there's similarities in the way that missing persons move in space and behave in space, similar to offenders if they don't want to be found. In 2008, 
I did a study on this and I kind of got hooked. And what I didn't understand at the time was the link to my personal life because my father was a fighter pilot in Israel and he was captured during the Yom Kippur War in 1973 and he was held captive by Egypt. And until the government got information that he was alive and captive, he was really missing in action. The trauma of the missingness I was aware of, but he died four years later. And so to me growing up, it was much more about his death and his absence from my life. And so when I started to work on that project, my mom said, well, you know, your dad went missing. And he also went missing later when he came back because he suffered trauma and he would just take off for days on end. But she didn't report him to the police. So he was missing as a serviceman, but also as a civilian. And I didn't put two, two together. And then once I did, I was like, God, isn't that incredible that it kind of led me this way? And I went to a conference where there were two families or relatives of people who went missing. And I just sat down and I, I remember coming home and my eldest daughter was two and she was in a playpen and I just sat down in the playpen and I couldn't even speak. I was just, I know that this is what I'll be focusing on for the rest of my working life. For me, it was a case of I didn't know this world existed until a family friend opened the door to me to introduce me to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in the U.S. And I first started on the exploitation side. And then I got lucky to move over to the International Center. And they said, here, pick up this missing work. No one's really done it for a while, but we really need to get it back up and running. And I was like, well, this sounds interesting. Working with police and NGOs in different countries, why not? And then starting to look into it more the, in, in 2006, I realized that there is no one's paying attention to this issue. Everybody's sort of focused on child exploitation and, and, and child sexual abuse. And I was like, but there's missing. Children who are abused or are exploited also have the connection to missing. And we're not looking at the the root cause of the exploitation in some instances and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And so that got me really going to work with all of the international community across the world to help them build a framework, definitions, databases, responses to issue of missing children. And then it became even more interesting when you and I met because you you're like, well, it's not just children. We need to look at the people. We need to look at all people. It's adults as well. This podcast was Caroline's idea, and she came to me to see if I'd be interested in working with her on it. But I asked her what her reason was for sharing information this way. I want to get to the public. I want to be able to get this issue up to a level that people understand and that we can create a global awareness. And this, so the idea of this was really to have an informal conversations with different people to get the public and professionals and anybody who wants to listen to understand the complexity of missing and understand how they could help. 
that hopefully our listeners will get this information to really take something from it to say, okay, now I have a better understanding and the complexity of this so I can help if it is with their children, if it is with their their elderly parents, or even just within their neighborhood to really talk about this issue and not just think it doesn't happen to them. One of the things I really was excited about in relation to the making a podcast is to reach people and just share information in a way that's not too difficult to understand. But with there's so many families, so many relatives that just don't have the resources to find that kind of information and to understand that you're not alone, that this happens to so many people around the world. And it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what language you speak in. It, it's part of all shared experience. We're all in this together. And so to bring people together to share information, but also to hopefully lead to some better awareness by the public. When you talk about the world of missing persons, it goes back into the very essence of us being human beings and about being. And if you look, for example, in the Bible and the story of Abel and Cain, supposedly the first children of Adam and Eve, where Abel was murdered by Cain for jealousy, really. And God asked Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And it's a rhetorical question because God would know where Abel is and what happened. But in a way, the subtext of that was that Cain is saying, I'm not responsible for my brother. And within that question, there's the assumption and the assertion that yes, you are. And to me, that's what missing is, that we all are each other's brothers and sisters and each other's keepers. And it's part of being human and it's part of the process of us being vulnerable as being human. Karen thinks our unwillingness to show vulnerability plays a crucial role in the numbers. There's actually no global figure for the number of people who go missing every year. But Karen took us through some of her figures to help get a handle on the extent of the missing issue. So I did a, a little calculation just because I like numbers. So I looked at a few countries that have annual statistics. So I looked at that annual number of people reported missing against the population number and got a percentage out of that and then did an average. So based on that and the world population, I came to a figure of somewhere between 8 to 12 million people being reported missing to the police or to law enforcement agencies worldwide. So if you think about 8 million people, for example, let's take the lower range. One of the things that I think people don't take into account is how many people are affected by a person going missing. And think for yourselves for a moment as a listener in your life, if you went missing tomorrow, how many people would it directly affect? So people that, you know, in your family, people you work with, people you associate with, 
it will all throw them into some sort of limbo. So a research found or estimated that 12 people on average are affected by one person going missing. But if you think about that, it's about 96 million people worldwide that are affected by a person going missing every year. I mean, it's mind-blowing. And yet we don't talk about it. We don't know that much about it as communities, as societies. Just to give everybody a a little bit of an understanding what that means is that just New York City alone has 8 million people. So essentially what we're saying is that the population of New York City goes missing every year. Even that number is an absolute understatement and underestimate because so many people are not even reported. They're not even recorded. And there's more insight to be offered by those statistics, which suggests to us that the reasons people go missing are as unique as they are. Two-thirds of missing person reports about children, so under 18-year-olds. But actually, the number of people going missing is more adults. It's just that the children go missing more frequently or repeatedly, as we say. So they generate more cases, but it's actually more adults go missing. And in terms of why the figures are not accurate, we kind of said about why people are not reported necessarily. So we, I want to go back to that. So there's a number of things. One is in some countries, adults that go missing don't necessarily count. It's just children, unless there's a crime involved. And of course, if it's not investigated on the point of being reported missing, you don't always know if there was a crime involved. And the other reasons why people are not necessarily reported missing is lack of trust in authorities, for example, where there's whole communities that have very little to no trust in it, the authorities will do anything or even harm the person if they're found missing. So in cases, for example, of people with dementia, with learning disabilities, with ethnic minorities that are afraid to make a report. So all of those lead to many dark figures, actually. The lucky part also is, is that majority of those numbers and those people that are reported missing are actually found and recovered. So we know about 90 to 95 percent of most cases that are reported are sort of resolved within the first week so that the numbers are pretty low at the end of the year. But even so, that's a huge number when we think about the number of population or the number of people that are just reported and the volume that the police have to deal with, as well as charities and nonprofits that work with the police. Across this podcast, you'll hear me and Caroline use specific terminology. If you're listening to this, I want you to pause for a moment and ask yourself this question. What does missing mean to you? As Caroline earlier said, the way we define people as missing is really important for a number of reasons. We got into this. The way I explain it when I talk to my friends is is that any person can go missing and it's a person that isn't where another person is thought they're supposed to be. And that other person could be family, could be friends, could be anybody that is 
caring about that person and saying, well, I supposed to meet that person or I'm supposed to know where he is, he or she is, and I don't. So the person is missing. That's sort of an abstract way. And then it becomes the question, who's actually responsible for that person? Is it the person that's looking for them or is it somebody else? And that becomes part of and, and what kind of vulnerability they're in. A lot of times I feel that we look at if I see a missing person poster or a news article around missing, it's sort of always described that it's the person that is missing is at fault or it's their responsibility. It's not us that are actually looking for them, that it's not us. It's the other person. It's the person that went missing. It's their decision. So why would we even need to care? Because they're adults in a lot of cases. I think there's overall a general agreement that it's it means somebody who's not where they're supposed to be. There's also the element of risk involved in that. And that's linked to the vulnerability because if we're where we're supposed to be and people around us know where to find us, know more or less where we're likely to show up, they don't think we're at risk. There's no then concern for us not being there. The issue of vulnerability is linked because when you are not where you're supposed to be and your loved ones or people who know you can't reach you, that normally is linked with a vulnerability. And it can be a vulnerability that is cognitive about not being, for example, if you have dementia or other illnesses, or it could be physical, it could be a variety of different vulnerabilities. But a vulnerability can come before you go missing and exist then. It can happen whilst you're missing because you're exposed to people who might harm you. You might be exposed to the elements. And it also relates to vulnerability when a person is found because there might be issues that have led them missing in the first place that then need to be identified and need to be resolved. So the issue of vulnerability is key to going missing. And a report of a missing person is always on the eye of the beholder. It's the eye of the reporter. It's their standpoint. And so in a way, it's a label. It's a label that we put on somebody else because in many cases, a lot of people that go missing don't consider themselves missing unless they're lost, right, or abducted. But people who are exploited, people with dementia who are confused, people who are depressed and just need to go away and just be by themselves, people with autism, for example, that get overwhelmed and just need some time to decompress, they don't necessarily see themselves missing. They don't understand that. And so to then be met by law enforcement agencies and feel like you're a criminal when in fact you were at your very vulnerable place. That's really important concept. Missing is a label. As humans, any of us can go missing and we all have this vulnerability. The issue is that these vulnerabilities or issues aren't always obvious. Mental health can vary from day to day and so can our resilience to whatever the world throws at us. Can I just tell you some of the terms? And I think people need to understand the confusion that is really not helping matters around the different terminologies that you may have heard and associated with going missing, but are muddying the water. So 
You got wandering, eloping, absconding, truanting, absentee, gone AWOL, and I can go on. The thing is, different agencies will use different terms. That's not helpful because then when you look at statistics, when you try to understand patterns, it's not clear. The other thing is that people then will create policies for those particular type of cases they associate with that particular element of going missing, be it from a care home, being for a person with dementia, be it for whatever reason, or going from a military base. At the very core, they're all missing. So if somebody is considered absconding or eloping, at what point are they missing? At what point do you make that transfer into this is a missing person? It's really then difficult for us to talk in a unified way and to have that language. And I think one of the reasons for that is the vulnerability. We don't like it. We, we, we don't like to admit vulnerability. It's like a symptoms to an illness going missing often, that something is wrong. There's something not right that has let that person going missing. And it could be a wide variety of issues that we'll touch on in another episode. But when you look at the numbers, it's astonishing that so little is understood that so many countries don't have annual statistics, that the reporting and the recording is so flawed in many cases. There's a lot of shame and guilt and fear in contacting authorities to begin with. It must be in itself an extremely vulnerable place for the person reporting because it's like you're just saying, look, I can't find my loved one. I'm really worried and I'm at a loss, I need, I need help here. And I can't think of anything more vulnerable than that. I think it's also, though, that people feel like, oh, if I report, but it wasn't anything, that they would get into trouble or that they put the person that is missing into trouble. That's right. And I, I'm glad you said that because it's exactly it. It's the vulnerability. We're all vulnerable. Missing is like when you throw a stone in the water and you see the ripple effect. And it's like, there's something hidden within. In some cases, no, obviously when you have abduction, that's not the case. But in other cases, even in exploitation, there's a vulnerability to begin with. And so the ripple effect gets bigger into that person going missing. And then the ripple effect on the loved one and the ripple effect then on the community and so on. And it just grows bigger and bigger and bigger. There are secondary events that happen that then cause a reason for going missing. When I did my trainings with the police officers around the world, I would say also say it's like people go missing because they just lost somebody. They Someone in their family died and they feel like no one understands them. And so they need to go somewhere because they can't breathe. They can't find a a quiet space because there's so much and so much grief. They they just don't even think. They just walk out the door and walk. And that then becomes that there's stuff in life that's happened that we don't even connect to missing because it's like, well, why would you do that? It's not, you don't do it consciously. So who is responsible for finding missing people, especially when the number of reasons for them being missing are so diverse? Caroline explained why she thinks 
a collaborative effort is needed between authorities and organizations in different nations to allow for the individual circumstances. Some are looking at it more from a law enforcement perspective and saying, well, going missing is actually a crime or it, it is neglect and therefore police need to be involved. There's no way around it. And then in other areas or in other countries, it's more of a social concern where the police are sort of a secondary role, where it's more about the social welfare system trying to help and figure out how to do. And I think one of the things I feel is that the two should really need to work together instead of doing one or the other, because it's not black or white as each case and each episode of going missing is different because we're vulnerable and each person is human. It's really to empower you as the listeners, us as as professionals to do more and to come together to strengthen the existing response and the existing infrastructure that is there and to talk to the politicians and the policymakers to say, hey, if you really are wanting to tackle some of these social issues, then this is also something you need to pay attention to. And that's certainly one of those things that we need to, as professionals in this space, come together to build common definition that is across industry, across the stakeholders, i.e. police, charity, social workers, healthcare workers, understood what that means, and then across countries, globally. We mentioned earlier that missing people are labelled missing by someone who notices they're gone. But that label isn't always something that vulnerable individuals are aware of. And we see that with exploited children particularly because they don't often understand that they're being exploited. And so they don't understand the risks, they don't understand the harm that they're exposed to. And so they also don't see themselves as missing. Right. They don't feel lost. And I think that's the hardest thing. It's just that they're going, well, why is someone looking for me? Once they realize that if a report has been made and there's a public appeal, I think a lot are suddenly going, well, why is someone looking for me? I didn't think that someone would be looking for me because either they don't, they thought they don't care. And then it's like, oh, wait, now I'm in trouble because the police is looking for me. I can't do anything. I need to hide. Where do you get your information about missing people? Before we wrap up this episode, there's one more big issue that frustrates both me and Karen around how missing people are represented in our media. I love movies and I love TV series, but... I see time and time again that two types of missing persons are represented in the media. It's generally speaking, child abduction and homicide. I mean, homicide relating to people going missing first and then it's suspected homicide and you end up in an investigation and so on. And it's about 2% of the total cases. So we'll talk about why people go missing, the 98% next time. But really the key issue for me was People then don't understand what missing is because it's so rare what they see. It's such rare cases that it doesn't represent the truth. It doesn't represent them, their experiences. There's more to missing people than abduction and homicide. 
We need to create a unified language for how we discuss this topic and address it as agencies and individuals. We want to challenge that misconception with this podcast, and I hope you'll stay with us on this journey. Our aim is not to panic you. We talked about how common this is and the vastness of this, but we don't want to start panic. That's not the aim or be negative. It's the opposite. It's to talk about things that are not understood. It's to shed light about it and then to empower your communities into action, into doing things that can improve people's lives and even save lives. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. Next time, we'll be joined by Achje Iven to discuss the reasons why people go missing. If you'd like to find out more about our work and any resources we mention in the show, you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. But if you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. I'm Caroline Humer. And I'm Karen Shalev-Green. Thanks for listening to Missing Persons Uncovered. We'll speak again next time. This episode was brought to you by the University of Portsmouth. You can find out more about how their research is changing our world for the better and supporting projects like this at port.ac.uk slash research.